Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Hello, everyone. This is Gary Sheffer, and welcome back to The Crux. Another great conversation this week, and I'm here with my friend, Mike Fernandez. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are things in Hudson? You know, the great thing about being on lockdown here is there's plenty of space. There's not many people where I live, lots of cows and sheep and that kind of thing. So to get outside is easy, easier, obviously, than a lot of of folks who are in the big cities. How about you? Well, it's pretty quiet here in Calgary. I mean, rush hour, you could probably have animals go down the street rather than cars. (laughs) All right. So we've got a great guest, Andy Farrow from Mars coming up, a VP from Mars. And really just uh, you're going to want to listen to this on how they've been handling the crisis. But Mike, just a few topics I want to touch on before we listen to Andy. And much of what I'm going to quote here over the next few paragraphs is courtesy of Vox and a reporter in there named James Coaston. And it's about conspiracy theories proliferating during this crisis. The thinking is, is that big events require big explanations and small explanations aren't found to be reasonable or satisfying to people. So therefore, conspiracy theories arise during these things and they become sort of self-soothing mechanisms is a word or phrase that Jane used, which I really love. In this case, particularly in the United States, but elsewhere, that's been compounded. Like Brazil. Like Brazil, exactly, where Bolsonaro has said some things about conspiracy theories and not been straight in many ways about the source and the danger of coronavirus, but they've consistently downplayed the virus The experts say it's no wonder the virus spread because many politicians have said that the risk was being overstated or even was the front for something nefarious. And we saw more of that in the United States here this past weekend with the Secretary of State saying it's clear, although providing no evidence that it was hatched in Wuhan. This has gone on for many centuries in past pandemics during the Black Death in the 14th century, the bubonic plague that killed more than 35% of Europe's population. Conspiracy theories targeted Jewish people. More recently, there were AIDS denialists who believed that HIV does not cause AIDS. During the swine flu in 2009, there were conspiracy theories about globalization and the pharmaceutical industry. So all of this is not just theoretical. We've also seen people acting on some of these theories. An L.A. man attempt to rail a train near a naval hospital ship because he thought corona was a globalist government takeover. So it's important to stop these things. So Mike, whose job is it to take on conspiracy theories and disinformation, particularly in a pandemic situation? Yeah, in some respects, it's part and parcel of the same colossal battle we've been seeing in other places, right? It's truth versus untruth. Yep. And it requires something of the media and it requires something of all of us. Uh, on the media side, you know, what you want them to do is responsibly call the question. And then those of us as consumers of information and news, I think there's a responsibility on all of us to question our leaders, Mm -hmm. you know, and to have a skeptical eye just as we watch all of this stuff unfold. And that's sometimes difficult because sometimes the messenger might share our same party affiliation or might share our own ideological leanings. You know, we inherently want to believe those who we think we're closer to. 
we live in this echo chamber that we've talked about before, but it's like if all of us sort of looked at information in the same way as we look at a traditional visit to the grocery store, where mm -hmm. we test the fruit to inspect <laughs> its firmness and whether it's rotten, right? Yeah. So we have that challenge for ourselves. And it's interesting because I've also been involved through the years with clients where they have been the target of some conspiracy theories or right. products have. And you know, what you end up going through is you end up saying, have a plan, explain the truth, do so quickly, fully, and in plain, understandable terms, create a culture of transparency. And so what we have to almost do for ourselves is create that culture of transparency where we're even questioning those and ideas that seemingly come from our political leanings. Yeah, I think that's right. Is it possible at this point, let's stick to the United yeah. States, yeah. is it possible to take politics out of this, particularly in a presidential election year, do you think? You can see how split uh, yeah. Americans are along party lines about how dangerous, they, for example, they think the coronavirus is. Yeah, no, I, I mean, we still have people in the United States that think you shouldn't have your children get shots. I yeah. mean, you know, yes. so it's never going to be 100%. There's yep. always going to be some element of this. But what you need to do is counter it with real information. I mean, the best disinfectant is light. And that light in this case needs to be better information. Well, gee, don't go down the President Trump path on light and disinfectant, though. Right? I mean, come on. <laughs> no We're, swallowing. <laughs> yeah, no swallowing any of those products or inserting them in other ways. So business has a bunch, getting back to this topic yeah. and to what's going to happen over the next few months, not just in the United States, but everywhere. People are going to want are itching to come out of lockdown and quarantine. Yeah. And a lot of decisions are going to have to be made about whether that's possible and based on public health. What role should business play in making or influencing, maybe the more important question is influencing those decisions? So I think two things. One, I mean, uh, government's going to make decisions and that's gonna be the first thing that sort of starts the ticking of the clock as to when yep. businesses decide to come back. So the hope would be is that if you have relationships with government, make sure that they understand the conditions that you'd like to be operating under mm -hmm. when you go back to work. Absent that, I think what a lot of large corporations are already doing is they're talking amongst one another. They realize that this is not a case where you win points by jumping the gun. Yeah. I think our guests will have something to say in this yeah, yeah, point. Yep. But I think most companies are in a position where they do not want to put their employees or their customers at risk. And in fact, like a couple of weeks ago, John Hopkins University Center, their center of health security, coaches governors uh, where they're essentially saying, take a cautious, phased-in approach. Yeah, right. Uh, no matter what you hear from other sectors. And, and I think many thoughtful companies and their, and their CEOs and their CCOs and other executives in recent weeks, at least the ones that I've talked to have talked about a staggered start. After bans are lifted, many companies aren't going to rush back to work. Yep. They're going to watch at least the initial stages, let the rest of society kind of be, you know, the canary in the mine shaft, mm -hmm. and then have that be a signal as to when are they comfortable. So my guess is that large companies are going to consider coming back maybe weeks after you know, Some the of the band. rest of the segments of society. Yeah. Interesting. Right. 
And then I think also what will happen is all of us will have multiple considerations to keep in mind. It's not just what the government says. It's like, okay, what's the source of transportation for that general vicinity and area? For me to get to work. Yeah. How are they going to safely get to work? And if it's all dependent on mass transit, it's going to be a problem. And then you think about places where there are tall buildings, you know, and already, you know, elevator shafts in Calgary Uh, say no more than two people in an elevator. So what does that mean about people getting up 30, 40, 70 stories of a building? You know, I hadn't and, heard that. That's interesting. And, yeah. And then companies are already starting to talk about having A shifts and B shifts. Yep. And thinking about how do we create uh, six feet of distance between where people are actually doing their work during the day. And then there are personal considerations. There are going to be some people who are fearful of coming back. That's right. Even, even if you don't come back until a couple of weeks after the ban is lifted. And then on top of that, you have young parents with children at home where now they're teaching their kids. They're both working at their computer during the day. They're juggling all day. They're working even longer hours as a consequence. And yet, if daycare isn't in place, if schools aren't in place, it's going to be very difficult for them Coming to back go back to, to the office. It is impossible. It's really interesting. I think you're right, Mike, dead on about business maybe following here as some patterns emerge and more information about the virus emerges. I worry about companies and some of it is going on, obviously, behind the scenes, lobbying for sooner rather than later based on financial considerations. But I do think the majority of big businesses will toe the line based on real data and public health officials' recommendations. Now, along these lines, before I start topic number two, I just want to say we have Catherine Wilson and Min Lee on the line with us. They are graduate assistants here at Boston University, and they are the ones who are responsible for making Mike and I sound smart, okay? Every week, they edit us. They take out most of the ums and ahs, although I still have a lot of those. And so I asked this question. By the way, if you're looking for smart people, these are two smart people that you're going to want to hire someday. Remember those names, Catherine Wilson, Min Lee. But does this crisis for people like Catherine and Min, does it change communications permanently going forward, as some people have argued? Yeah, I think it does. Let me address one issue because I've, I've talked to a number of students already who are concerned about where we sit yep. and job availability, internship availability. And my first message to them is you're in the boat with a lot of other people, number one. <laughs> number two, you've gone to a great school and got a great education. So when this sort of tide lifts, you're going to be in a great position. But also to realize this is hopefully a once in a lifetime situation. And there are things one can do to both sort of chronicle the moment as well as to take advantage of the moment to learn and share thoughts and capture one's thoughts from a generation. That said, I think what we're gonna learn is that pace of change is never going to be slower. Right. We're also going to learn we need to be smart as we move quickly. We need to source information from every nook and cranny and not just from a hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And that's going to change a lot, I think, in terms of how the world of work and how the world of communications works. We want to be able to dip in either through digital analytics or through understanding different communications channels, how to get to the nub or the crux Mm -hmm. a piece of information (laughs) very quickly. And I think still at the end of the day, What's going to be required is people who 
think clearly, can offer a way to simplify the dynamic and complex, and yet do it in a way that is clearly understood by multiple audiences. Yeah. I don't think that's going to change. Okay. Well, the first part, great advice for young people. There will come a time when the markets will recover. Mm -hmm. And so prepare yourself now, build your networks and all of that. But I wonder about the makeup, the composition of the corporate communications team. I don't run one now, but man, I, I might think about taking a look at different kinds of capabilities. Yeah, yeah. To your points, people who have a deep understanding, maybe the, the hybrid scientist slash communicator, yep. because technology is only going to get more complex, chemistry is only going to get more complex. Mm -hmm. That ability, to your point, to take that complex and make it understandable and in written form in a lot of cases, yeah. it's just gonna grow and grow and grow. Yeah. The other thing that, that's changing too, I think, is a lot of senior executives are seeing the power of internal communications in a way yeah. they haven't seen in a long time. So I actually think people who are good at sort of formulating new ways in which to communicate internally are gonna be prized. Excellent. What's the biggest change you think? This is my last question on this. I hope companies recognize the essential nature of communications more going forward. It is clear, if anything, this crisis has made clear in our work is how essential we are through things like just advising the CEO on where to spend his or her time, how to spend reputational capital, all of those kinds of things. The essential nature of what we do is seen more by boards and by senior executives. What one way does the CCO role change? Well, I mean, I think it changes in a, in a couple of different ways. I do think that there will be greater importance on internal communications. I think we'll be looked upon actually as doing more in the way of research. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of us have been doing these quick pulse surveys. So a CCO is going to have to know more about research. Digital analytics and the ability to understand online constituencies and influencers mm -hmm. will play a bigger role. I think online video is going to become a bigger player. It's been increasing anyway, but I think it's going to increase exponentially because most of us during this crisis have been communicating by Zoom and Skype and FaceTime in a way that we weren't prior to COVID-19. Mm -hmm. I think what it means to manage a brand Right. In a dynamic workplace is going to change or in a dynamic world in the sense that I think people are getting that we still need to have some element of a broadcast message. But I think what we're learning is that everything communicates, how we talk to an audience, how we connect in various ways with an audience. So the sense that all things communicate will require the CCO to even have a keener sense of all the touch points for a corporation. That's really well put and a good way to wrap it up here today, Mike. Well said. I love this idea that all things communicate right down to how you spend your time, how you reward people. It's all about leadership. That's a great phrase for CCOs to remember. Let's wrap this one up. Yep. And say thanks again to Catherine and Min for their support of the Absolutely. Crux. Let's go to our, our guest, Andy Farrow. Our guest today on The Crux is the Vice President of Corporate Affairs and Sustainability for one of the world's largest privately held and family-owned businesses. Mars, 
Better known for its candies like Snickers, M&M, and Wrigley Gums, it also has other foods like Uncle Ben's rice, pet care products like Pedigree, and nutritional and dietary supplements. Our guest today cut his teeth in UK labor politics, went on to work for Hill & Knowlton, uh, the public relations firm in London for more than a dozen years, ultimately serving as the head of its corporate practice for all of Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. Then he was hired by Wrigley to be its European Director of Corporate Affairs and Public Policy. In 2008, Wrigley was acquired by Mars, and he moved to lead Wrigley's global corporate affairs function then for the company out of its Chicago headquarters. In 2016, he was asked to take over the reins for corporate affairs for Mars Incorporated. He serves effectively as the company's chief communications officer and has a remit that includes sustainability for the company, among other responsibilities. With that responsibility, Andy and his team and the Mars company have begun to redefine what it means to be a purpose-driven company, finding ways to further embed the company's five principles and purpose into everything they do from sustainability to running the business. Our guest is Andy Farrow, Mars Vice President of Corporate Affairs and Sustainability. Andy, welcome to The Crux. Sorry, thank you for having me. We're thrilled to have you. As to... Um, as you know, I mean, we've, we've met long before, and I was the former chief communications officer at Cargill, which is a major supplier to Mars. And I've long been impressed by you, your team, and the thoughtful kind of longer-term focus of the company. Now that we're in the midst of COVID-19 and the pandemic, how has that thoughtfulness, that care, that longer-term view helped the company? And I think... Uh fundamentally it's helped us because we really know why we're here we really know what matters both to our consumers and to our owners and we really know what we stand for um, so I think many of us uh, many people would know Mars primarily for some of the brands we have and we have some of the strongest brands in the world but actually probably what differentiates Mars even more than its brands is how we do things so our five principles the purpose that we've articulated of the world we want tomorrow starts with how we do business each and every day and and the way that we've defined success for the company by defining it across a range of areas which yes it includes financial performance but includes many other things uh, so during during a crisis like this a time like this it really requires the company requires a long-term approach doesn't just enable it, requires it. It's what it expects from me and is what it expects from everyone. And it's meant very much that through the past few months, we've really been able to focus on the running of the business and, and making the calls and making the right decisions as, it, as opposed to having spent a huge amount of our time reporting on the running of the business to other people. And that's a great advantage at a time like this. It's great to have you on, on the crux. Mars is a big global company. And I, so I have a couple of things I wanted to talk about. How did you begin to sense the depth of this crisis? You have operations in Asia and, and did you get an early warning signals that were helpful to you in making decisions about how to proceed both from a strategy standpoint and a communication standpoint? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, we have a significant business in China. In fact, Mars, Mars was the company that introduced chocolate to China, that introduced mm. pet food to China, <laughs> and introduced chewing gum to China. 
And, and so, you know, we unsurprisingly in each of those areas, we have significant businesses and, you know, we, we have only a large number of uh, facilities in China. I think we employ nearly 10,000 people in China. So really from late January, we were very aware of what was going on. You know, our crisis team had, uh, had activated in the market and, you know, and I had members of my central team liaising with the, the business on a daily basis. So we, we saw, we saw what, what happened early. And we were able to look at the approaches that we'd taken in China, some of which were just approaches we took ourselves, others of which were ones that really were defined by government, and were able to really, when things started to spread, you know, rapidly adopt, adopt some of those and apply them elsewhere, first of all within the Asia region and then globally. So I, I think, it, I think it, you know, we did get a relatively early signal on this. I think we're not unique amongst that. There are a number yeah. of other companies who've got a, who've got a similar footprint. From a, from a communications point of view, it, it did mean that when this became a broad-scale global crisis that was mm-hmm. you know, leading you know, every corporate communicator in the company really to be spending the vast bulk of their time dealing with it, we were able to really draw from the lessons um, from China. We were able to get the corporate affairs leaders there you know, on the phone, sharing of what worked, what they learned, sometimes yeah. what they wished they'd done better. Uh, so I think that was helpful and as we now move into a stage where parts of the world are starting to open up we we can learn from what's worked in china one of the things we clearly see in china is the recovery isn't linear you know it right. isn't that just suddenly everything opens up and it's smooth sailing and, and you know we've seen in china places that have opened up they've had to shut down again uh, and had to recalibrate mm-hmm. so i think it, we can learn a lot we can also learn a lot in terms of how the different categories respond and how quickly you know people are you know are likely to back, be back you know in different scenarios shopping for different sorts of products or services well that's so i, I didn't know about your legacy in in china that's amazing and those local connections having worked for a multinational like ge are just so essential but you have to listen right the idea that corporate HQ knows all and is going to drive a uniform approach across an organization as diverse as yours is where you, you can fall down on these things. Yeah, I mean, it absolutely is. And I think Mars actually, by its culture, is a quite a decentralized culture. Um, right. uh, and so we, we've never really been a command and control from the center. Perhaps the only thing we command and control are principles and purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are a number of sort of key processes that you'll see everywhere, but uh, but really we have an awful lot of local decision making. Actually, one of the things we've found during this process is that we have, in some cases, had to do more from the centre, so much clearer guidance from the centre than we would do in normal circumstances. In normal business, yeah, yeah, but just quite, you know, because essentially our business was our business structure is is there to best need, serve the needs of consumers and their pets. You know, that's what it's built around. It's not built around what is the best way to manage um, a global pandemic. And so there are certain things <laughs> exactly. where, you, where, you, you, where you've suddenly said, you know what, we need to have a really common approach on this. It's never been important in the past, you know, <laughs> to have a common travel policy. Right. But in the time of a global pandemic, you clearly need one. It helps. 
Well, along those lines, Andy, as you reflect on the lessons like that from this pandemic, you know, there's been a lot of discussion recently about how is this the new normal? Has business itself changed or business strategy changed? What do you think the changes are for communications as we come out of the pandemic, at least what might be the first wave of the pandemic? Are the things you're thinking about doing differently from what you've learned? I think so. I mean, if you look at it, I think we've learned an awful lot about our businesses. We've learned an awful lot about our communities and we've learned a lot about ourselves individually. We have certainly, you know, we have certainly found that it, that faster is better than perfect. And that in a world when so much is unclear, the more clarity you can provide, um, the better. I think we've also found that actually at moments of great stress, people do really very individually respond to things. And often the arguments or the points of view you're hearing expressed are more about how that person is feeling than the the, the logical response. And we've found that we've been able to operate with much greater speed. We've done things in hours that might have taken days or weeks to do before. And so I think all those positive cultural changes that you that we're seeing, I think very much are things that we are taking forward. I think this very much is that don't let the best be the enemy of the good. Yeah. Yeah. If you're waiting forever to craft the most perfect ever (laughs) corporate communication, don't bother. Uh, yeah. because it's more it's more important that you have something providing all the fundamentals are there yes providing right. that it's built on principles we at the very start we set three principles for or three priorities for how we are handling this the first one is number one protect associate you know, health and well-being associates is what we call our employees yeah. Yeah. the second one was to do everything we can to prevent any further spread of the virus you know, recognizing okay. as a global business we had a role you know, mm-hmm. even if it, it just to, to try and help stop things in its tracks. And then the third one was ensuring business continuity, recognizing actually that, that many of the categories we're in, we, we have two and a half thousand veterinary hospitals around the world. Uh-huh. If those hospitals aren't open, pets are not getting treated. We have something oh, I didn't like, know that. Yeah. Yeah, wow. we are, we're one of the largest providers of veterinary care. You know, we feed something like 400 million pets a year. Wow. Uh, you know, again, you know, they, pets rely on us for, for nutrition. We've got, a, you know, a food business, you know, rice and pasta sauces and herbs yeah. and spices that yeah. m- many of us are using much more than we've ever done before. <laughs> and then, you know, if you even, like, even our sort of confectionery products, you see there that pe- things that people absolutely regard as essential and are bringing laughter and joy. So business constitution was number three, but it was number three. It was yeah. less important than, than one or two. And we have been very clear that this has been in order of priority and has been order of priority throughout. Anyway, that's terrific. And I think more broadly about this, it also, doesn't it change a little bit what we think about crisis communications? I know I've been on senior teams at lots of different companies and we would design our crisis plans and there was always a plan for a pandemic, at least in the last two or three companies. But we never really thought seriously that we'd ever employ that element of the plan. You know, it was like, yeah, that'll come after the zombie apocalypse. But you've co-led the response to this crisis at Mars, along with your CEO. Just curious as to what crisis management lessons, what strategic lessons might we learn from this? 
Yeah, I mean, I think your point is right. I mean, people have often had dusty scenarios for all eventualities. And I don't think any of us, or certainly have lived through something that has truly been a global crisis. You know, we were used to in, in any one year having, you know, a couple of events in, you know, in, in different countries or, or regions that were elevated to what was a crisis team thing, you know, maybe around a product recall, maybe around something else like that. You'd never have a situation where literally every crisis team uh, in the company was activated globally at the same time about the same issue. And so, you know, so it, it wasn't a playbook because, you know, people didn't have a global crisis plan in, the, in 1918. Uh, and so I think from this will come new playbook in how you do a thing. I think for me, the good thing is that actually the approaches that we used on a small scale worked on a very large scale and worked with the, the biggest of, of decisions. I think the other thing that I, I really, you know, we, we sort of re-articulated the purpose of Mars a couple of years back. Mm -hmm. And I think never has there been more important a time to have a clear purpose. And our purpose is the world we want tomorrow starts with how we do business today. And that actually has been the frame that we have made some very big decisions at a global level very quickly, including the decisions that have significant financial impact. Simply asking the question, does the decision that we're taking today, is it a contribution to the kind of world we want tomorrow? And, and when you're judging a decision against something like that or against our five principles, it actually becomes an awful lot easier than, look, than looking at spreadsheets and the like. Yeah. And so having this North Star and really knowing what guides your your decision-making enables you to respond more quickly. And I, I think at, at times like this, you know, speed really matters. I've certainly seen throughout my career, speed has picked up. Uh, you know, I, I remember oh, yeah. when I first moved into this role, we had, it was during the 2016 election campaign where um, there was the tweet about Donald Trump's son on oh. Skittles and refugees, which you may or may oh, not remember. remember. That. Yeah, yeah. 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 And I think even in that one, we responded quickly. In reality, we had a couple of hours before from something right. breaking before we had to respond. I think yeah. now a couple of hours sometimes seems like a lifetime. <laughs> yeah, but I think in, the, in your answer, there are two really important things. One, that as, as we move ahead, we've got to learn to respond more quickly and that we have to respond in a way that reasonable people would expect. I mean, with that sense of purpose. I think the other thing is that you cannot manage a crisis like this through the line. Right. You, know, you cannot require things to go up four or five levels right. at the normal speed in order for decisions to be made. So you really need to equip people with principles around decision making and then have a route in where people can quickly surface bigger topics that need to be addressed and decided on. And I think the commitment very much has to come from the top, from the top that, you, you know, mm -hmm. you can do that quickly. Yeah, no, that's great, great. point. That's great. Uh, you know, we underscored in the intro and you underscored in one of your answers that Mars is much more than a confections or a candy company. While being a very important company in so many ways, Mars is one of the big players, I think, in terms of connecting with consumers. And I saw this Uncle Ben's commercial, and, and, it, and it really struck me, one, because it's using the same tagline you've been using for some time, which is dinner brings us closer. But it played into 
the current times in, in, in terms of this pandemic when we're all so separated and we're not in the same space as all of our loved ones. And I just thought it was spectacular, this story about dinner with grandma. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, Uncle Ben's for a number of years really focused on the, the importance of food and the cooking of food together uh, and eating of it together and really bringing people together. And it, and it has huge benefits in terms of connecting people socially. Actually, it has all uh, huge benefits in terms of health, because typically if you cook a meal with rice, it will typically be healthier. Just by mm-hmm. nature, what people will cook with rice. So there is a, there's a real health and nutrition message behind it as well. And, you know, obviously at the moment, we, we can certainly cook. Some of us are fortunate to be able to connect with family face to face, who we are at home with. Uh, many people are much further away from, from family. And so really the thought behind the ad was really how do you, you take the current theme and campaign? How do you update it in a very relevant way? For the, for the times. And this was really about you know, showing a family cooking together but, and connecting together over, you know, over technology. Uh, it's a very warm story. It was a real, it's a real father. It's a real daughter. It's a real oh, grandmother. Nice. It was made in the flat, a vacant apartment next door to where the father and daughter live. All the, the, the props, etc., were essentially props that were had. You know, all the food that was provided was organized via grocery delivery. So, it, so essentially, it was all—it was all done in a sort of social distancing world. I think the ad very nicely entertains. It's very warm, but it also yeah. gives people ideas of what they can do. And you know, obviously, what we've seen through this period is that on products like rice, for example, or many of the sort of you know the, what people used to call the consumer staples, you know, that people have really stocked up on them. And so, people are looking for actually for, when they're at home for inspiration. Yeah. as to what to, what to do with it. So actually a lot of our digital spend has really focused on recipe ideas. So you've yeah. got these things in your cupboard, you've got these things in your refrigerator, you know, how can you, how can you, you use them? While at the same time, of course, you know, Uncle Ben's and Mars, we've been doing a lot with charitable donations. We've, you know, we, we've committed 20 million, which we are providing, Terrific. Uh, you know, particularly into, into our sourcing communities, but also into the communities where we operate. And we have, you know, from the food side, provided literally millions, uh, you know, of meals through organizations to, to people that need them. So I think it, we're, not, we're not just talking the talk. We, I think, very yeah. much are walking the walk. Fantastic. Well, that reminds me, Andy, you know, I'm a cyclist and I was looking how to make rice cakes. You know, rice cakes are very popular for cyclists as fuel and I've never known how to do it. I just last night looked up how to make rice cakes and I think I'm going to attempt it. So if my house burns down, because I'm a terrible cook, (laughs) you'll know, you'll know what happens. But on a similar topic, I just got off a phone with a former colleague of mine And they've been uh, obviously quarantined like everyone else is here. And he had just gone out and got a yellow lab to help with uh, this isolation that they're feeling. And it, it sounds like a lot of people have been doing that. And your business has been doing some incredible things on the power of pets that help comfort us during tough times. Could you speak to that effort as well? Yeah, I mean, our, our, our pet care business has got a purpose of being of creating a better world for pets because you know the reality is that pets create a better world for us, and mm-hmm. uh, and you see it in so many areas. You see that you know, that children do better at school when they have a pet. 
you see particularly you see even even in prisons when pets are introduced into prisons are given you know able to look after that you know, actually it alters behavior people are nicer to each other when pets are around <laughs> you see that in the office as well this generally it, it provides another uh, another me- reason to connect we actually saw that in the election campaign in the 2016 election campaign where where we took a, a, somebody with a lost dog, inverted commas, to, you know, wearing a Clinton T-shirt to a Trump rally and uh, wearing yeah, a yeah. Trump T-shirt to a Clinton <laughs> rally. And with the same story, and people rallied around. And, and so pets do bring this out. Now, they play a key role, I think, in helping uh, helping reduce loneliness. And we've done done a lot of work with, we, say, the Human Animal Bond Research Institute, really looking at what best, best practice is to really to help people through through pets and at the same time get pets out of shelters. You know, certainly one of the one of the things that we've seen during this time is that, you know, in many cases, you know, shelters have been happily emptied uh, of pets and the pain you know, of pets are finding loving homes and, and, and with people who are able to, you know, spend time really getting them ready. I mean I think the the one watch out from all this is going to be is that people are not going to stay at home forever. People will have to return to work. And if you if you've adopted a pet through this period of time, you need to think very carefully and really carefully plan for how do you stagger your return oh, to work yes. in a way that it doesn't cause huge stress on this pet who's been used to having you around all the day. I mean, we, we my, myself and my wife have two small dogs. I mean, they are adoring having us around the whole time. <laughs> they are going to be less Same here. Impressed. Now, they're kind of used to it and they're more adapted and we've had them for a number of years. I think somebody if you just just adopted on. So I think that needs to be, um, be thought about. And another campaign and work that we've really been running around the world is this idea of better cities for pets. And this is really providing a, a guidelines to how cities can become pet friendly, how workplaces can become pet friendly. I fortunately work in a pet friendly workplace, so our, you know, our pets can come to work. And, oh, nice. uh, there's a lot that can be done to making pet ownership much easier. And there's, there's simple things like a rental contract. Normally, a default rental contract for an apartment says no pets. Well, mm-hmm. probably doesn't need to save no pets. It can depend on the pet and all those kind of things. So there are a lot, lots of simple things that can be done, I think, to, to make the world a better place for, for pets. And if it does make a better place for pets, it makes us a better place for us all. For humans. Andy, it sounds like you're integrated really well across business strategy. And you mentioned your North Star, the new purpose that you did. What's your remit? In other words, what do you oversee at Mars? Because it's interesting to me how well integrated you are. So, uh, so I look after corporate affairs, which is really all is all communication. So it's internal, external communication, mm-hmm. government affairs, corporate brand um, forms part of that as well. And you know, corporate affairs at Mars is a function that's very much integrated into the business. So I, I sit on our leadership team. I report to our CEO. Uh, you know, you know, and I, and I've sat on leadership teams at Mars, whether it be at a regional level or at a global segment level, throughout my time here. So that so you get a function that that, that is is used to be really being seeing itself first and foremost as a part of the business. Right. And, and secondly, as, as communication experts. So, so that's corporate affairs. Then lead, I, I oversee sustainability. We have a chief sustainability officer, mm-hmm. chief sustainability and, and procurement officer, mm-hmm. Harry Parkin, who, who reports to me. And we have a, uh, so we have a very strong sustainability program. And I'm really the steward of sustainability um, 
on the on the leadership team. You know, now obviously being a, you know a privately held family owned company, communicating to the family is a core part of what my uh, my function function takes responsibility for. And obviously the family are are ever present throughout the business. They're on the board, and you know there are those that work within the business as well. But how do you ensure that across the generations? People are being appropriately informed and really and kept up to date with what's going on, which has clearly been been important through the current time. You know? And the thing that's most impressed me during it is just when I when we talk to family members, when we talk to board members, how the first question is always the same, and the first question is always about the associates. How are the people um, doing? Which is right. yeah, the people, which is you know, it's just great, it's great to see and great to feel. Well, it's it, it's really impressive because you can see the purpose integrated across all of those platforms. And I'm I'm wondering if one of the things that comes out of this pandemic crisis is that the remit, the scope of what we traditionally think of as corporate affairs, gets a little bit more expansive to include that consistent purposeful view across things like sustainability and philanthropy and internal and external, because they're all coming to in public policy, government relations, it's all coming together so quickly. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really the way that the world is moving and, and yeah. that's the way that the, the questions are being asked of companies. Exactly. Uh, you know, this is the biggest ever test case of whether the words that companies have had on mission statements really amount to anything real or, or whether it's yeah. just spin and it's you know and every company's feeling that test of you know in our our toughest times are we able to stick to our principles and are we able to do things we're proud of so so i think that the questions are being asked i think through it you're seeing actually that in many cases business is really rising uh, yes. to the challenge i see consumers i see citizens very keen to see business leadership and pleased that when they when they get business leadership. As to whether that comes into corporate affairs or elsewhere, I think that's really an organizational uh, huh. a question. I think the real question is to the extent to which it's is it integrated into an, into a company's thinking. I, my view is if it is integrated and you've got a strong corporate affairs function, they're naturally going to play an important role in that. Yeah, in that they, yeah. they really do connect the company with a whole range of stakeholders from, you know, internal and external. And are, uh, one of the things I think we've seen for this is that corporate on the whole, you have to actually be quite good at making decisions with partial information. You do mm. it all the time with every media inquiry you get. You don't have That's total exactly. information. Uh, and so we've seen through this crisis, I've seen a number of corporate affairs leaders at Miles really step up and be really, really, really surprisingly comfortable leading and taking decisions when so much is unknown is uncertain yeah you know the, the interesting thing to me too is is that i mean you make the point about spin versus action and i think mars has long been a company that wanted to focus more on actions uh, than spin clearly when i worked for one of their major suppliers had a lot of interaction with your predecessor as well as with uh, other people in management there with your sustainability remit what are some of the issues you've been tackling more recently and and share with us kind of your approach and, and, and why that's important to the company, the family and other stakeholders? Yeah, it's, good. it's, a, it's a very good question. I mean, uh, we mapped our supply chain in detail in a sort of 2015-16 period of time. And what we found was that we as a company had the impact of a small country, equivalent to about the country of Panama. 
So really what we do matters. You know, we, we can't solve all the problems, but we can make a significant step towards them. So if you look on something like climate change, we, you know, we set very strong science-based targets and we've made very good progress towards them. Right now, for instance, it's something like 53% renewable electricity. You know, we've similarly got tough targets around improving the lives of people uh, 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 and nourishing well-being. And so it's, it's been very much at the centre uh, of how we approach it and our desire to be sustainable in our own generation. When we delve down, the really tricky issues, the most tricky issues to solve are the ones that we have the least control over. The things that exist many, many, many hundreds and thousands of miles outside our locations and it really is when one looks really at smallholder agriculture and looks mm-hmm. one looks at palm oil when one looks at cocoa for example or when one look, you know looks at you know you know the mint industry in India or you know or, or fishing in Thailand and so you know we picked the, the key raw materials where we know we we must make a difference where we have a we are a, a significant buyer and we've really developed country by country crop by crop plans to you know to try and drive change and in many cases we're trying to we're trying to drive change in areas where essentially the market has completely failed you know yeah. normally uh, you know as a free market develops it deals with quite a lot of these problems there were lots of american agriculture 100 years ago had was very different to american agriculture today but in many cases the places we're dealing with uh, agriculture has not moved on at, the, at that rate so so we've got really very very tailored plans on palm oil you know we we tried through the certification route as the first right. step and then realized that ultimately we just need to massively simplify the supply chain and so our, our you know our plan is i uh, get to you know get under 20 suppliers mills yeah. at the mill level uh, right. by the mm-hmm. end of this year then you can actually really measure what's going on and you, you can track it cocoa much more complicated but then we, we also have a very detailed cocoa for generation plan where we're trying to work farm by farm you know to improve livelihoods you know and tackle tackle many of the issues that you know the, many of the endemic issues that, that are there and so really detailed work yeah. trying to drive change and why do we do it i think we do it because we're, it's the right thing to do. You know, we actually measure the success of our company. The yeah. Mars family measure the success of a company against four vectors, against financial performance, on how well positioned we are for hmm. future success by, you know, how much our business is looking in, sure. in, in our in categories that are doing well, by the positive cycle impact we have on the world, which is measured in terms of our sustainable generation plan and about whether we're a trusted partner in society. So this deeply matters to them. You know, they, they're, yeah. they're measuring my performance. They're measuring a whole, you know, whole business's performance against, uh, against progress in the areas. And I think the reason we've, we've talked about it more is because actually there are very few issues we can just solve on our own. Right. We actually need a coalition of the willing to drive change. <laughs> Uh, And the only way you get a coalition of the willing to drive change is that externally, if there's recognition of the problem and what some of the solutions might be, and also if actually the ones that are driving change can actually get some recognition for the the positive things they're doing. You know, that's also part of the business case to make it visible to talent where they choose to come to work. Well, maybe our audience doesn't realize how difficult that challenge is and why you almost have to go to auditing location by location because these these ingredients, if you will, palm oil or cocoa, are so easily commingled in the palm oil case when it when it's a liquid 
it can get stuck with batches that aren't responsibly sourced. And similar thing can happen with cocoa as well. They're, they're, they're small and yet you're ordering huge quantities of these ingredients. And it, probably the only way to really manage it is as you're trying to manage it now. In terms of your, you, you talked a little bit about metrics here, you talked about financial performance, you talked about societal impact. Are there other elements to this? So do we, we measure corporate reputation, we measure, measure our trust with associates, so that's, okay. um, and then, you know, and then we have some fairly standard metrics to look at how, you know, look at quality of growth, i.e., you know, how much of our business is, is in categories that have looked like they're growing strongly for the future. You know, all of those things are things we report on extensively to our owners, uh, and internally we don't tend to report on it, uh, with exception of the sustainable generation plan, we don't tend to report on much the else beyond that because as a private company you know we, we think there's you know there's some things that only we need to know interesting along those lines i've i've fascinated andy by the the work you do in sustainability and being a private company i've never worked for a private company so i'm not familiar with how agendas get set and that kind of thing you mentioned before uh, obviously keeping the family informed is one of your priorities H- how much does um, in a private company, how much do those private owners help to drive, let's say, a policy around something like sustainability? We have a board, uh, and that board is made up of predominantly family members. And so, obviously, from a from a board governance point of view, you know, when you are looking at, at a new at a major policy shift or a thing like that, you know, that sustainable generation plan would be certainly something that we would that we would discuss at a, at a board level. I think if one looks more broadly with the family, is that you know it's important that they are proud of the company, and it's right. important that they are proud of the company they own. And so, you know, for us, it's important to understand what drives that pride. And certainly having a company that, that plays a positive role in the world and is a trusted partner in society is something that is incredibly important to them right across, uh, right across the generations. So I think it, it more creates the climate rather than determines what the, than what the policy approach is. The actual is. policy, but you know, okay. It, but it, but it's certainly this is certainly something that they believe you know very strongly. They choose each year to reinvest something like ninety percent of the earnings back in the business, wow. uh, and they have an objective of keeping this business private for the very long term. And so so that is important that, that, that this business is a business that they can be proud of, and that when they bump into people in the street, they they speak positively <laughs> of the company. The company is doing things that would make them want to continue to make the choices that they do make. I think it, it is important. And, and what drives them, you know, they, they're just you know, ordinary human beings. Human uh, beings, who exactly. Who are concerned about the environment, you know, who are concerned about packaging, who are concerned about all of those things, and believe that the, the business they own has a unique ability to make a, to make a really positive difference, um, you know, in the world. You know, there'll be, you know, there, there are millions of people who rely on Mars for their livelihoods. And for whom you know Mars can be and is an incredibly positive experience. So there's a great sense of responsibility there as well, too. Yeah, indeed, responsibility is one of the one of the five principles. Hey, so as we come to a close here, we have on the phone with us a couple of our students, uh, Catherine and Min, students here at, at Boston University. Any advice? for the next generation of communicators. We've talked a little bit about what the future might hold, and I thought your points on speed and not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good were were 
really spectacular. But any any advice to the young people who will be the next generation dealing with issues like this? I think what I would say is, from my own career, is that I've done best when I've been doing things I love and I feel passionate about. So I, th- so I think, you know, first of all, is kind of choose wisely. I think, you know, it is critically important that while communications may be fun- your function, you, you know, you go into any organization as, as a part of that organization, a leader of whatever you are in charge of. And so mm-hmm. I think, you know, getting real fluency with that organization so that you can bring your communications perspective into the real business or organizational challenges that that, that face. So I think that that's important. And I think the final one really is be direct and straightforward. I think you can be really kind with people, but tough with ideas. And Mm. and just really saying what you think uh, and being straightforward. My, My CEO delights in going around telling all my direct reports that he finds me very annoying. But he actually wants me to be annoying. Uh, you know, he wants me to. I think you know, both Gary and I have raise, been there. <laughs> he wants me to, you know, consistently raise fact-based points of view in a non-personal way and and present uh, <laughs> uh, present options. And that sometimes isn't, but, you know, sometimes it's not the nicest thing, but say, well, it's all very well, but the reality right. is X. And you truly see it in times of crisis. You in times totally. of crisis. It is, it's the time when the communicator can be the most robust on the most yeah. difficult of issues to the most senior of people. That's so funny. If you can apply that more generally, uh, you'll do well. My, my CEO used to have a name for me that I can't use on this podcast. So <laughs> along those lines, Andy. <laughs> so one last thing, Andy, it is probably a question that you get from, from family members is how's your team doing through all of this? I mean, I think, look, I think the team is doing well. I think the team is very proud of what Mars has done. And, and many of them, people have said to me, they feel very fortunate to be working at Mars. But, you know, layered on top of that, everybody has their own individual situation that they're facing, the individual situation that they're facing, you know, you know, you know perhaps having to homeschool their child at the same time or her being away from parents or family members or having family members who are sick and so this is i think a trying a trying time for for everyone I, you know first and foremost this is a human crisis and a and a and a human tragedy and so i think first and foremost people are our team is responding as humans i think one thing we've you know certainly for those of us that are based in the mclean office in the, in virginia say that i think we've all realized how much we love the office, but how little we actually need it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's in fact been fascinating to hear how many people have stopped using the term come back to work and instead say come back to the office because everybody's working. Everybody's working long <laughs> exactly. and hard. So, Andy, many thanks. We've been having a chat here with Andy Farrow, Vice President of Corporate Affairs and Sustainability at Mars. Thank you very much, Andy. Thank you, Andy. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Crux and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter. And you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.